Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Tuesday, the 8th of September. In today's podcast, we will hear Dr. Gary Groman's comments to the Prime Minister's announcement that the COVID-19 vaccine will be available in January 2021. The latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Professor Groman, can you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm a consultant virologist and I've worked at the World Health Organization for the last three or four years. And prior to that, I worked for the Regulatory Authority in Australia, the TGA, for around 17 years. And prior to that, I had a research career. Professor Grumman, the Prime Minister has promised a vaccine by January 2021. And experts say that any expectations uh, that it will be available in early 2021 is optimistic. What are your comments? Look, I would agree. I think it's very optimistic for a number of reasons. The fa- in particular, the phase three trials really won't be available until the end of this year, and it will take time uh, to analyse that data before there can be approval of the vaccine. And that data will be efficacy data. Uh, and we don't know about efficacy until we get that data. Yes. And then decisions will have to be made firstly by the regulator and then by government and the manufacturer, whether everything will go ahead. From a production point of view as well, there may well be delays in the sense that it takes time to produce the vaccine. And even though they may well produce on speculation the uh, vaccine now Mm -hmm. in parallel with the approval process, uh, it still needs to be lot released, in other words, tested by the manufacturer and the TGA, to make sure that what is in the vaccine is at the right concentration and, and it has to pass all the TGA parameters to do with uh, purity and sterility, um, antigen content, uh, or nucleic acid content and so on. It all has to agree and, and that can take some time as well. So it, if everything went very successfully, And the data was actually available by the end of the year, and I suspect it could be later. The analysis was done, and then the manufacturing, in the manufacturing process, there were no hitches at all, Mm -hmm. and the EPA agreed to release it, and then the lot release was successful, then I would think at the very best we'd be looking at the middle of next year. Now, I have a question about the TGA being put under such pressure by the government. How will the TGA function to such a timeline? Look, in my experience, TGA worked very independently. The uh, clinical delegate, as it's called, uh, gathers all the information from various experts within the TGA. This is all information provided by the company. 
this is fact-checked and researched uh, very thoroughly. Uh, discussions are had, and then a delegate will make a decision about any particular product. The fact that there might be pressure here or there from the company or from the public or from the government would hopefully not even, even enter into that decision. And I think I have confidence in the regulatory authorities to maintain that line, and I doubt that they would be particularly influenced by pressure, although there's no doubt, no doubt at all, that um, pressure will exist in some form. But uh, nevertheless, the people making these decisions have to do it independently, a bit like a judge does at a court. What are the repercussions if the timeline proves to be way too optimistic and too much false hope has been generated? Look, the repercussions are that uh, we will have to uh, basically live with this virus in the community and now we'll need to have some different strategies. We will need to look at treatments in particular because what we'll then need to focus on uh, is the death rate to keep that as low as possible and that mm -hmm. will mean protection of those that are vulnerable. We still know, uh, we still know as we have almost in the beginning, that it's the older generation with immunosenescence that are most at risk, followed by people with other immunodeficiencies in the community. And these are the people that need to be protected. And we've probably all read the reports from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, which say that some 94 to 96% of people who have died or who are severely ill also have a comorbidity of some description. It might be diabetes or obesity or heart disease or some factor like that or an immunodeficiency. So it's quite clear that uh, the, um, the uh, people that are unfortunately dying also tend to have a comorbidity or they're over the age of 70 or well over the age of 70 in most cases, really over the age of 80, uh, where most of the deaths are occurring, at least in the data we can see in Western society, which is keeping the data quite well. By that I mean the US, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, who have kept excellent records to date and I think are fairly accurate. But that CDC report, uh, which is only, what, a week ago, uh, showed quite clearly that that's the area that we need to be careful of and target. We need to look for or use other treatment options. Mm -hmm. And we know people have looked at anticoagulants and steroids, dexamethasone, there's been a clinical trial, and we know that dexamethasone uh, can help. Uh, there's other anti-parasitic drugs that people have flagged, but there's really no evidence, uh, scientific evidence to say uh, that these will absolutely work and be any better than placebo or uh, normal critical care. Mm -hmm. uh, but the book is still open there. Um, and people need to look for other treatments as well, very specific treatments if possible to the coronavirus itself. People are also looking at general antiviral drugs. And again, they haven't particularly worked any better than uh, placebo or, or general clinical care. And that does make sense. And it also sounds as if our frontline workers are at particular risks. Uh, what would you uh, recommend for them while we're waiting for all these vaccines? And will they be one of the first recipients of it? Well, I think everyone in the community, and particularly frontline health workers, uh, anyone engaging with the community really has to be scrupulous about hand washing. This is really the key because we know we know that the virus is passed on via droplets and saliva that become micro droplets in the air. We know that the virus is also excreted in fecal material. 
So hand hygiene is the first critical thing. Uh, the second thing is to wear a mask. Now, a mask will particularly, uh, as we've discussed before, masks will particularly uh, protect against the person who has an asymptomatic infection or a mild infection. If they wear a mask, then it does give a fair bit of protection to others that they encounter. If you're well and you're not excreting the virus and wear a mask, then we also know that the protection isn't as good, but nevertheless, uh, there is some protection. So it is worth wearing a mask when engaging with others closely, whether that's in a hospital or a GP office or a dental chair, whatever it might be, it's very important to wear a mask. Masks, masks also simply make people more aware. But the key thing is hand washing and scrupulous hygiene at home and in the office uh, and also good cleaning practices. We also know that mm. virus can survive for a number of hours on surfaces and uh, that can also be picked up by hands and then transferred to nose, eyes or mouth, uh, which is how we generally infect ourselves, mm. apart from in aerosols that, that may be around. But the social distancing is so critical and we can see the evidence for that. It really has worked in Australia and it really has worked in New Zealand and a number mm. of other countries. And it's very important to keep that up if we don't have a vaccine available. All those things need to be in place. That will be our COVID normal, I think, until we do know that we have good treatments or we do know we have an effective vaccine, which will take time. It's really good to be reminded that these basic things are actually so central, isn't it? Look, it is. And, and um, the other proof that they work is that other diseases have uh, been vastly reduced. Diseases like norovirus, pertussis, influenza. There's mm -hmm. hardly been any influenza around. Uh, a number of other respiratory viruses. So we know that these very simple measures of good hand hygiene and cleanliness uh, and wearing a mask and in particular social distancing really do work. And people's awareness has been raised now since uh, February. And we should be able to continue that for some time as mm -hmm. a kind of COVID normal, as long as we keep up our awareness. And if we're asymptomatic, then by practicing these things, we pass it on to others. And certainly if we're symptomatic, we should isolate ourselves, get tested, uh, and then take it from there with our GP. So with regard to this um, promise, if you like, or this statement by our Prime Minister, our patients will certainly have their hopes raised and they may want to have conversations with us. What would you advise we say to our patients? Look, I think the, in society at the moment, there's a lot of hope. Um, people are uh, jumping into the future. They're not staying in the present. Uh, this is a slow step-by-step -step process, albeit done very efficiently with regard to vaccines. We will not have efficacy data until the end of the year. We currently have some immunogenicity data, but that is not efficacy. And mm. politicians and uh, social media and so on have mistaken the fact that there's an immune response for efficacy. Mm -hmm. uh, efficacy will be quite different in the older age group and the younger age group and children. And all this, all this information has yet to be unveiled. And we will know nothing until it is unveiled at the end of the year by several companies and phase three studies. And depending on the age groups, they've also stratified and studied as well. It's important that uh, we see a study in older people and 
the adult age group and the under 18 pediatric age group. Mm -hmm. uh, all, this, all this data is so important. It's very good to see that these studies are being done between 10 and 30, 40,000 people. That mm -hmm. is really excellent because it's a new platform for vaccines. These are modern new platforms and um, it's a novel virus and we have a virgin population. So it's very, very important that those large studies are done, which they are being done at the recommendation of WHO, and that's excellent. And that will give us a confidence in the safety data, firstly, and then secondly, in the efficacy data. Uh, and that will give us an idea of the actual effectiveness of the vaccine that's being produced. We will need to wait, and I would advise people not to jump the gun and live in the future and live in a, in a dream of hope, but rather live in reality and understand that even if politicians say we have good efficacy data, that's simply not true. We have good immunogenicity data at this stage after phase two. There is no efficacy data. Um, and that's important to understand. We do not know if this vaccine will work or be credible. If, for example, it's only 50% effective or 70% or 30%, then mm -hmm. that will raise the questions about whether it will really be of significant benefit to society and right. to age groups. And, and it'll start a whole new round of discussions. And I hope those discussions are going on right now uh, amongst virologists and vaccinologists, public health people. These are the things we need to be thinking about. There's no reason to expect that it will be 100% effective. That's almost ridiculous for any vaccine. Yes. Um, but, but if it's 90% effective, of course, we're going to use it. But what about 50 or 30? Will mm. we use and then in what age groups? You asked about which age groups might get it first. For example, you mentioned frontline healthcare workers, and, and that's absolutely right. You, you, you would expect, although I don't know what government policy is, but I hope they're thinking about it, but you would expect that the frontline healthcare workers, uh, hospital workers, GPs, people working in uh, aged care homes or with the elderly in general, uh, really do need to get the vaccine first. Uh, and that's very, very important that they are protected because they are the carers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I guess the next group you would expect are the groups actually at risk, which would be the elderly and those with underlying medical conditions and also our Indigenous population. Uh, and then you would look at perhaps travellers, uh, people that are planning to travel overseas or need to, or people coming into Australia. And, and I think it would be important that they show a vaccination certificate if they come into Australia, for example, there's precedence for that with other vaccines such as yellow fever and smallpox yes. in, uh, decades ago, and um, or TB even. And now, um, uh, and you would also look at closed community settings, obviously, whether they're institutions or boarding schools or mm -hmm. something like prison. Um, uh, so any closed community setting, there should also be vaccines. I would include things like cruise ships as well uh, in, in that. And, and then the general public. Uh, but it always comes back to, even if we have a vaccine, let's not forget an, about hand hygiene and social distancing, cleanliness mm -hmm. uh, and masks. And I think that's a, that would be a good message for us all to give to each other and particularly for GPs to advise their patients to keep that up. And of course, GPs can keep it up by example, as can other healthcare workers, to make sure they've got the sanitizers, hand washing, they mm -hmm. take temperature of the patient or the person that comes in. Uh, so people are aware that temperature is the first symptom 
that a dry throat is another, that a lack of smell is another. Mm. Uh, and this can be clinically pinpointed pretty accurately uh, now. It's quite different to influenza uh, symptoms and pertussis and others. So it can be diagnosed uh, with care and then tested, of course, to confirm. Uh, and then the people can be asked to isolate uh, for a period of time, self-isolate at home, and to be aware of these really critical things. Hand hygiene, social mm -hmm. distance, uh, masks, and cleanliness are all, are all so important. And that won't go away for some time. Mm -hmm. And that will be a good thing, particularly in winter, when we can also reduce other respiratory diseases and also enteric viral diseases like norovirus, rotavirus, uh, enteroviruses in general, uh, those viral infections are also being reduced as we speak. Gary, that's a very, very sound advice and certainly tempers hopes the right way. I really thank you for giving us your precious time and uh, this important advice to all of us. Thank you very much and uh, it's been very good to speak with you. It is very good to speak with you too, Gary, and I wish you a very good day. And now from the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases has exceeded 27.2 million. The USA has recorded nearly 6.3 million cases. India has the sad honour of having the second highest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in the world, with more than 4.2 million. Brazil has exceeded 4.1 million cases. India has also exceeded 4.1 million. Russia has more than 1 million. Peru, nearly 690,000 cases. Colombia has more than 666,500 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths is recorded at 890,687. The USA recorded more than 189,000, Brazil nearly 127,000, India with more than 71,600, Mexico more than 67,500 deaths. Australia has reported 26,181 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 770 people have died from COVID-19. In the past day, Victoria recorded 55 new cases of COVID-19 and eight deaths. 241 patients are still in hospital, eight are in ICU and 17 are being ventilated. New South Wales has reported nine new cases of COVID-19 with two more healthcare workers infected. Three of the new cases are returned travellers in hotel quarantine and the rest are locally acquired of known sources. Queensland has reported one new case in a returned traveller in hotel quarantine. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au.
You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.